0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Harlem Renaissance sculptor Augusta Savage is remembered in her hometown of Green Cove Springs.
1: Augusta Savage was a um, artist in the uh, New Negro Movement that led into the Harlem Renaissance. Most of the major artists of the Harlem Renaissance we're students of hers.
0: We'll discuss four other historic women in
2: Florida. Throughout Florida's long and, and diverse history, women have played a very important role in the development of our state and the development of our territory.
0: And we'll talk about travel guides for African American tourists called Green Books. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Lift every
3: voice and sing.
0: The song Lift Every Voice and Sing began as a poem written by Jacksonville educator James Weldon Johnson in 1900. In 1905, his brother John Rosamond Johnson set the poem to music and it became known as the Negro National Anthem. The song became the inspiration for a larger-than-life sculpture created by artist Augusta Savage for the 1939 World's Fair. Eugene Francis is with the Friends of Augusta Savage, the organization presenting the Augusta Savage Cultural Arts Festival in the artist's hometown of Green Cove Springs.
1: It's a small community. Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows everyone's family. So we have some new people into the area that um, may be just getting uh, introduced. But this is an old area of Florida, Hibernia, Fleming Island, Green Cove, uh, Middleburg, Orange Park, or Laura's Grove as someone call it. But this is, this is home.
0: As you can hear in the background, a large crowd of people attends the Augusta Savage Cultural Arts Festival to listen to live music, enjoy festival food and vendors, experience a fashion show, and learn about Augusta Savage through educational displays.
1: Uh, Augusta Savage was a um, artist in the uh, New Negro uh, Movement that uh, led into the Harlem Renaissance. Most of the major artists of the Harlem Renaissance were students of hers uh, when they were kids, like Gwen Knight and Roman Bearden, Ernest Crislow. And uh, her most prized mentee was Jacob Lawrence. But um, she was the catalyst behind a lot of things.
0: And um, this is her home. Augusta Savage was born in Green Cove Springs on February 29, 1892. She finished high school in West Palm Beach, where her family relocated. In 1907, Augusta married John Moore and they had a child named Connie. Moore died soon after his daughter was born. In 1915, Augusta married James Savage and kept his name after their divorce in the early 1920s. Augusta Savage moved to Jacksonville before heading to New York in 1921. Camilla Perkins Thompson was born in Jacksonville on March 6, 1922 and remembers growing up there.
4: We all lived in the same general neighborhood and we were not far from our schools. We could walk to school and we knew just about all of the other youth that were in the neighborhood and many of them, a few of them are still living in. We still communicate with some of them because we had such heavy bonds because we were all friendly and we went our various ways. But then we got together in the playground that was nearby and in the schools because the schools were within walking distance. And so we didn't have to worry about problems. We could walk to school and have plenty of freedom.
0: Thompson was born a third-generation resident of Jacksonville, the city had a thriving, self-sustained African-American community with black-owned businesses and black schools.
4: There was a thriving African-American group in the city and community because everyone tried to help each other and regardless of whether you had a small house or a uh, a large house, everyone felt that You were equal. We didn't realize that we were not. (laughs) And I didn't know until recently that I lived in the hood. (laughs) Although we had, some of us had nice houses, they still said we lived in the hood.
0: (laughs) During the early part of the 20th century, when Augusta Savage lived in the Jacksonville area, Many notable African Americans spent time there, including Zora Neale Hurston, Harry T. Moore, and A. Philip Randolph. In the later 20th century, an unintended consequence of laws ending segregation was that the infrastructure of the strong black community in Jacksonville was undermined. Camilla Thompson.
4: People have moved out of the community. In fact, one of the students that I taught went away to college and came back, he had a top job. And he came back and he moved into a ritzy neighborhood way on the south side. And I asked him, I said, how did you happen to go into that neighborhood when you grew up here in Jacksonville? It seems that you would have come back to our neighborhood. And he said, well, when I applied for a job, the company I was with when they sent me to Jacksonville, they told me they didn't want me in that neighborhood anymore They wanted me in this one because we move you around quite a bit and when we move you around we want you to be able to sell your house easily and so this is why many african americans don't even know anything about the north side or the west side
0: thompson says that before desegregation there were two distinct communities within the black community in jacksonville
4: and as I was going up, the dividing line was Main Street, east and west, and those who lived uh, east of it formed a close-knit group because it was a smaller group. And those who lived on the other side of town were, were not quite as close because there were more of them. But it was interesting that a lady wanted to know when I married my husband, she, went to ask, she asked my mother-in-law, well, how did he happen to go way over on the uh, west side and marry someone when we have all these pretty girls on this side of town? <laughs> she didn't know I heard that. <laughs>
0: At the age of 17, Camilla Perkins Thompson attended the 1939 World's Fair in New York. The sculpture of Augusta Savage was prominently displayed there.
4: My father and some other people were members of the Negro Business League, and they would have conferences. So we went to, went with my father Miss, and Miss Eartha White, one of our outstanding philanthropists and workers, and some other people to New York to their conference. And my mother and I stayed with some of her relatives until later in the week, Then at the weekend, or near the weekend, we went to the World's Fair.
0: At the World's Fair, Augusta Savage displayed a larger-than-life plaster sculpture called the harp based on the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, written by Jacksonville residents James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson. The sculpture depicts African-American singers forming the shape of a harp.
4: They had built it out of clay or one of those materials but it was not substantial, but they had created some little souvenir uh, models of, and they called it Lift Every Voice, showing a choir with people singing Lift Every Voice. And so we bought some of those little souvenirs to bring back with us. And uh, they bought one for me and mine is in the La Villa Museum in Jacksonville.
0: While in New York, Augusta Savage had a short marriage to a protege of Marcus Garvey, but he died within a year. She went on to study art in Paris, gathering accolades for her work. She returned to New York in 1931, founding an art school that nurtured many notable African-American artists. As a young woman attending the World's Fair in 1939, Camilla Thompson was inspired to see Augusta Savage's work displayed in such an impressive international venue.
4: Oh, it was exciting. It was really exciting. And it's unfortunate that she did not really get a chance to get the recognition that she needed. Um, Because people at that time didn't think African-Americans could do anything worthwhile. But now they realize that they missed a beat. But she and the others were recognized later as being outstanding artist and a part of the Harlem Renaissance so she had to go out of the country in order to study and then bring back some of her art for others to see so she did not get any real financial reward from it but now it would be nice if she were here to be recognized.
0: Eugene Francis, an organizer of the Augusta Savage Cultural Arts Festival, says that he became aware of the artist while growing up in Green Cove Springs.
1: Well, I've always known of Augusta Savage. She was a classmate of my grandmother, Oral Francis. And actually, my dad, from the time he was 13 years old, worked as a professional chauffeur for one of the prominent families here in Green Cove Springs who had homes also in Philadelphia, New York. So my dad was actually at the 1939 New York's World's Fair and saw the original piece. So called the harp or lift every voice and sing. So he always shared that with us. Tell you a little quick story. My freshman year in college, I'm a graduate of Florida A&M University and initially was majoring in African American history and the chairman of the history department was Dr. James Eton. And Eton had this way of knowing where everyone was from and they actually practically knew members of your family. And he went down the class, around the class, the first day of class, asked everyone where they're from. And then he asked each of us, who's the most important person from your hometown? And I said, Augusta Savage. And that was it for him. And then he pulled me aside after class and said, as you know, most of the material lists her as being from West Palm Beach. And Francis, you need to do something about that.
0: Francis took his history professor's advice to heart, organizing an Augusta Savage Festival for several years in the early 1990s. When work took him to Tallahassee, the festival stopped. Now Francis is back in Green Cove Springs, and so is the event commemorating the town's most famous resident.
1: Yes, it's an annual event, and right now we're working on a three-year project to get our foothold this year, which I think we were able to do. Next year, the Cumber Museum and Art Gallery in Jacksonville will have a six month exhibition of Augusta Savage's work starting in October. Therefore, the festival will land directly in the middle of that six month exhibit from October to April. And then the year after that, this is really the the big kahuna, so to speak. Augusta Savage was born in an elite year, in the year 2020. Will be in a leap year, and the fest will actually land on her birthday, and we're going to have a hell of a party.
0: Although Augusta Savage's most famous sculpture, the harp, was destroyed following the 1939 World's Fair, her work continues to inspire. Augusta Savage died in New York on March 27, 1962. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on our website at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. While you're there, you can subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Florida Historical Society recognizes the contributions of women throughout the year in a variety of ways. For example, FHS manages the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, home of pioneering businesswoman Carrie Rossiter, stages the theatrical presentation Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words in venues around the state, and presents an annual Outstanding Woman in Florida History Award each year at the annual meeting and symposium. Joining us now is Ben Biassi, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa to discuss
2: some lesser-known but influential women from Florida history. Throughout Florida's uh, long and, and diverse history, women have played a very important role in the development of our state and the development of our territory. Uh, in fact, in 1982, the state of Florida decided to put that into uh, a state statute, uh, creating what is now known as a, the Florida Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, and that was created to, quote, honor women who throughout their lives and efforts have made significant contributions to the improvements of life for women and for all citizens of Florida, end quote. Uh, and and every year there are new inductees uh, who are uh, welcomed into that group, and it includes some really uh, fascinating women. Of course, uh, f- people like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and, and even Marjorie Kennon Rawlings, most Floridians would automatically recognize uh, the, the names of, the, of those women and understand and recognize their contributions to Florida history. But there are so many other women who are uh, members of this Hall of Fame that, that don't necessarily get that same uh, recognition. And two of the women we're discussing today were elected to public office, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, first, I want to talk about a woman by the name of Ruth Bryan Owens, and, and Ruth Owens was actually the daughter of um, William Jennings Bryan, who uh, uh, ran for, for president several times, uh, was involved in South Florida politics throughout his life. Uh, Ruth came to Florida in 1919. She had been married several times, and uh, after her, her uh, last husband had passed away, she and her children moved to be closer to her family. It was actually while she was living in Florida, she decided to become involved in politics after her father died in 1925, and she was actually the first woman uh, elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Florida. In fact, she was one of only a few women representing the, the entire South at that time period. Uh, now, she represented Florida's fourth district, which at that time stretched all the way from Jacksonville to Key West. So you can imagine the, the uh, varying needs of, of many of her constituents. But uh, one of the hallmarks of, of her time in office, which spanned from 1928 until 1933, uh, was the fact that she was uh, uh, dedicated almost to a fault to the needs of her constituents. She spent quite a bit of time listening to and responding to the needs uh, of the, the people of the East Coast of Florida. Uh, in fact, a great example of that is that she was um, quite a bit opposed to uh, repealing uh, the the prohibition law, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, which uh, made it illegal to to sell alcohol. Um, Personally she was um, in support of the 18th Amendment. However, her constituents overwhelmingly voted for the repeal of that that amendment. So uh, in keeping with the the needs and wants of her constituents, she went against her own personal convictions and voted in favor for repealing that act. Now she also went on to uh, serve as one of the first First women uh, to hold a, a, a diplomatic position. She was a U.S. diplomat to Denmark for a number of years after she left the U.S. House of Representatives. She was also uh, the first woman on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee while serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, now I also want to mention a, a another woman who served on more of a local level, uh, M. Athelay Range, and, and many people in South Florida might recognize that name. She was actually born in Miami in 1915, uh, the, the daughter of Bahamian immigrants. Uh, and she worked in a lot of the African American communities where she grew up in Miami. And she first got involved because she saw the uh, uh, inequalities that, that existed within the public school system in Miami. Now, her children went to a, a segregated public school in the 1940s, uh, but she she noticed that uh, there were no permanent. Uh, buildings within the school, they had inadequate water supply, they didn't have lunch, uh, all kinds of of serious issues. So she got involved politically and and actually approached the city commission and had a lot of these things change. And it was actually not until 1965 that she ran for the city commission. Uh, She lost in 65, but in 66 was appointed and then subsequently was reelected twice. And she fought throughout her entire political career and then later throughout the rest of her life uh, to better not only the lives of, of women within her Uh, the city of Miami, but also for uh, uh, African Americans and those who she felt were underrepresented by the city at that time.
0: We're also looking at two women today recognized for their humanitarian work.
2: Yeah, that's right. And an exceptional example is a woman by the name of Ertha Mary Magdalene White. Now, she's a native of Jacksonville. She was born in 1876. Her adopted mother, Clara White, was actually the uh, born into slavery. was a daughter of slaves herself. Uh, was born in, essentially in, in uh, into poverty, but her mother fought very hard. Uh, Ertha's father, her adopted father, died when she was young, so her mother really raised her on her own. She worked very hard and instilled in Ertha a sense of uh, humanitarian cause. They were um, very pious uh, individuals, but they also believed that any person living in Jacksonville deserved this basic human uh, dignity, and, and she fought very hard throughout her life to provide that for, for those who she felt were um, very underrepresented and, and the underprivileged uh, folks living in and around Jacksonville and Duval County. Now, Eartha was also a very successful businesswoman. A lot of people um, don't know that. Uh, she's known for, for creating uh, what is known as the Clara White Mission, which was named after her mother, which still exists today. And it served the uh, homeless and the needy throughout the Jacksonville area. Um, but because she was such a successful businesswoman, she funneled all of that money into her humanitarian causes. Uh, she created an orphanage in the early 20th century in Jacksonville. She created a uh, retirement home for, this is long before any kind of Social Security Administration, uh, for those who could not afford to retire but also were unable to work Uh, and up until the very last days of of her life she was almost 100 years old when she passed away she fought and she put everything she could into uh, helping those who were in need throughout her community and lastly i want to talk about uh, roxy o'neill bolton and uh, bolton was was interesting again for her uh, her work to uh, represent uh, women throughout Florida, but throughout the United States, she was actually uh, uh, the uh, founder of the Florida chapter of the National Organization of Women. Uh, she personally fought to have Congress pass the Equal Rights Amendment, or to push for the Equal Rights Amendment, which unfortunately did not uh, eventually pass. But she was the uh, loudest proponent, at least from Florida, to to help uh, and and actually personally met with President Nixon to create the uh, Equal Rights Proclamation in 1972. Uh, she organized the a women in distress uh, clinic, which offered local assistance and housing to uh, women who, who were uh, victims of abuse, um, those who were also uh, uh, involved in substance abuse issues, which, again, still exists today. She organized marches uh, throughout the state to... Um, help uh, uh, bring and shed light to uh, rape victims who were um, not being properly uh, represented within the, the justice system in South Florida. Uh, and again, throughout her life, she pushed um, both state and, and local officials to um, not only realize that, that these populations live and exist in Florida, but that they were um, in, in need of assistance uh, through, through both government need and, and through private organizations. So, you know, all four of these women in their own way have helped to promote and develop the um, the betterment of, of Floridians, uh, not only for their communities, but, but for uh, uh, those uh, people living throughout the state. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. African American tourists in Florida used to use travel guides called green books. Holly Baker is a graduate student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida and has this report.
3: Certainly Jim Crow made travel and accommodations more difficult. I have an example. Jack and Rachel Robinson left Southern California for the Dodgers training camp at Daytona Beach, Florida. They were going to fly from Southern California via New Orleans and Pensacola. They left on February 28th, and they were to be there on March 1st. They were delayed for 12 hours once they got to New Orleans. The airline would not let them leave the idea was that there were other white passengers that were able to bump them. They also weren't able to eat because the airport was segregated. Fortunately, Jack Robinson's mother, Mally Robinson, had made a shoebox full of boiled eggs and fried chicken for them. And so they did have that. Finally they got to Pensacola and once again they couldn't eat in the airport so they had to take a bus and they had to sit in the back and they took the bus from Pensacola to Daytona and they finally got there. So they were late but they did make it.
5: That was historian Dr. Fawn Gordon talking about the difficulties faced by baseball legend Jackie Robinson and his wife Rachel as they traveled to Daytona Beach, Florida in 1946 for his first spring training with the minor league baseball team, the Montreal Royals. The next year, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American major league baseball player when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie and Rachel Robinson's journey from Los Angeles to Daytona Beach shows just how challenging it was for African-Americans to travel during segregation. Their experience also helps to explain why African-American travel guides, called green books, became popular during this time. Dr. Gordon has more about green books. The first green book was published in 1936. It was the brainchild of Victor
3: Hugo Green, who was a postal worker in New York. And initially, that first year, 1936, the green book was only for local in New York City, for those places, for blacks who were visiting or who lived there, but wanted to know safely where they could eat and do other things. And so in 1937, the Green Book became national in scope, and it remained so until the last one was published in 1967.
5: The Green Book's motto, printed on the cover, read, carry your Green Book with you, you may need it. Jackie Robinson later recalled that once he arrived in Daytona Beach, he continued to have issues finding accommodations and food, He could not stay in the same hotel or eat in the same restaurants as his white teammates. Many African Americans traveled with Green Books in order to avoid the sort of issues Jackie Robinson and his wife faced on their trip to Daytona Beach. As Dr. Gordon explains, Green Books enabled black travelers to find places where they could feel welcome and safe.
3: If you didn't have the Green Book, then you wouldn't know where you could eat or where you could have overnight accommodations or you couldn't find nightclubs or taverns or garages or any of those things that you need when you're traveling in the country. So the Green Book provided Not only listings for overnight accommodations and restaurants, but for barbershops and beauty shops and tourist homes, even if there wasn't a motel that was black owned that would accommodate them. If you needed a tailor or whatever you might need, it wasn't just overnight and dining, but it was about all the things that you might need at any time. And the Green Book provided that. It was about black businesses and the patronage, certainly, of black customers.
5: The Green Books stopped publication in the 1960s. Dr. Gordon tells us more about the end of Green Books. In 1967, I think that was the last
3: year that it was published, but that was because the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been passed. And even before then, As early as the 1940s, Victor Green had always written that one day he hoped that the Green Book would not be necessary anymore. But of course now we know that there is niche travel and so there might be a need for a resurgence of the Green Book simply from the standpoint of wanting to accommodate black travelers.
5: Dr. Gordon explains why it is important to remember and preserve Green Books. We like these historic artifacts. And we don't want to forget what Jim
3: Crow modernity was, what it looked like in that historical moment.
5: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast or online at myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.